Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Okay, here we are once again with another episode of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kevin Ohio, coming to you from the sunshine-filled city of Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> I bet you love that opportunity that opportunity to say that for just one episode a year, don't you? Oh, you better believe it. I, I'm going to jump on that opportunity. <laughs> anyway, I'm Dr. Sharin Tofai tuning in, tuning in just a few hours earlier and therefore a few hours longer, sunnier on the best side, the west side, Los Angeles, California. We, well, yeah, you, you still rub that in my face, but, know. Uh, you know, that's, try. that's okay. We, we, we've had a great run of episodes, and episode 11 is another that is sure to please our listeners. Um, of course we do, Kevin, because our guest today is from none other than Cleveland. And, and by the way, for those of you who are listening and not driving, I suggest a drinking game. Take a shot each time Kevin mentions Cleveland. <laughs> Editor's note, don't do this, you'll die. Absolutely. Uh, today we have the opportunity to have on the show yet another all-time great of sages, Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky. As a brief introduction, Dr. Ponsky completed his surgical training at University Hospitals in Cleveland uh, in 1976. He then joined the faculty of the Department of Surgery at University Hospitals, where he was the director of surgical endoscopy. In 1979, which was a great year, by the way, he became the director of the Department of Surgery at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in Cleveland, shot, uh, where he remained through 1997. Dr. Ponsky later joined the Cleveland Clinic as the director of endoscopic surgery. In 2005, just as I was wrapping up medical school at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. In Cleveland. Yeah, Dr. Ponsky assumed the Oliver H. Payne professorship and chair of the Department of Surgery at Case Western University School of Medicine. He has also served as surgeon-in-chief at that institute at that time. He then returned to the Cleveland Clinic to concentrate on a practice of foregut surgery and advanced surgical endoscopy in 2014. Ironically, just as I was getting ready to leave for Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, seeing somewhat of a trend here. I mean, I think you're just exposing that you are a stalker, Kevin. Yes, probably true. Um, and as our listeners know, Dr. Ponsky has served as the president of our great society, Sages, in 1990. And over the years, he was also president of the Ohio chapter of the American College of Surgeons, the Cleveland Surgical Society, and the American Society of Gastrointestinal and, Endos and Endoscopy at ASGE. Not to be confused with the defunct American Society for Surgical Endoscopy, or ASSE, for those of you that listened to our episode with Jerry Marks. Yes, yes. And he is a member of, uh, and leader of numerous prominent surgical societies. The list of awards that Dr. Ponsky has received would take up the balance of our time, but I'm sure we'll get into some of that during the show. Uh, he's presently the Emeritus Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Welcome to Sage's Stories, Jeff. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you, Kevin. Good to see you. Thank you. Jeff. That it? Are we done? Yes, we're done. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It was just to introduce you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. So we know this isn't your first rodeo, so to speak. I don't know if they'd have rodeos in Cleveland. I have rodeos in Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. About it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know you've been on multiple uh, podcasts before, the most recent of which was a great episode on the history of the PEG tube um, on state current pediatric surgery hosted by your very talented son, a pediatric surgeon, and my personal hernia surgery friend, Dr. Todd Ponsky. I believe we'll be making sure that there's a link to that uh, podcast in our show notes because it was a great episode and I'm sure it was very fun to do it with your son, Todd. Oh, well, 
Yes, I agree. So you've already been, I think you've already listened to some of our past Sages Stories podcasts. Many of us minimally invasive surgeons look up to you like a father, Jeff, in the field of surgery. Um, I'm not sure you're aware of how much you mean to so many of us. Uh, you know, we really look up to you as a father in the field of surgery. Kevin literally refers to you as Papa P, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I'm sure is based on his affection and admiration for all that you do and your influence on his own personal injury, uh, personal journey, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Kevin may also have some daddy issues, so we don't know. We will delve in that in a future podcast. Um, okay, so anyway, here we are on the official Sages Stories podcast. Uh, our real goal is not necessarily to review your life in clinical surgery, but rather to learn more about you as a person behind this amazing legacy that you've built, and our audience will learn more about it as um, we go through all this. We call it kind of like this as being like a living legend series. And in this case, there are tons of stories. I know so many of your stories because we've all had so many, so much interest in it. So I'm really excited about our podcast. So why don't you please start with a little free form, describe your upbringing, a uh, little, bit, little bit about your journey before your medical career, and maybe we can stop right around medical school. Yeah, so thank you. Uh... It's a pleasure to be with you folks, seriously. Um, it's interesting to talk about those years that you just uh, referred to. I was born in, again, Cleveland. I went to Cleveland Heights High School, public school. I was the worst damn student uh, around. Uh, I, had, I, I looked at my, uh, my record recently because my wife pulled out some old stuff and I saw Whoa. that my, uh, I looked at my grades. I had a 2.027. Oh, wow with my acume graduating from high school. Wow. Uh, and uh, that was uh, lucky. I, I never even opened a book, I didn't care. But I did wanna be a doctor because I had an uncle who was a, a physician and uh, I, I admired him so much. He was a role model for me, which had pointed out to me for my whole life that role models are so important. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be, if I could in my life, respected as he was and a gentleman like he was. I don't know that I ever became the gentleman that he was, but I have been lucky in other ways. But uh, I went to high school. I played little sports poorly. I was very little. I didn't do well, but I was on the football team. I uh, ran around chasing ladies and having fun with my friends. I was never a drinker. There was no such thing as drugs in those days, so that wasn't even an issue. And when it came time to go to college, I took the ACT exams and I did pretty fair on those, but I had no idea what it was about. And my college counselor, my unit counselor said to me, Jeff, I think you should consider uh, just going to trade school because I don't think you're gonna do well in college and your parents don't have much money. They didn't have any money. And uh, mm -hmm. my father sold used tires for a living and uh, he, he said, I consider not going to college. Uh, but I decided I wanted to try and I wanted to be a doctor. So I got into a very good school, Miami University of Ohio, but I got in midterm, which is when I graduated high school. And uh, I went to uh, Miami of Ohio. And that day that I was dropped off by my mother and I turned around and I said, look, I'm gonna do this as best I can do. I don't know what I'm gonna do. All I know is that I'm gonna work my butt off and I'm not gonna screw around and I'm not gonna party because I'd done that my whole life. And now I was just gonna study. And I didn't really know what that meant. I had a whole bunch of pre-med courses, you know, the usual stuff in those days, it wasn't very flexible. We had a standard curriculum. I took English and I took Spanish because you're required to have a language. And I took some history but I also took zoology and biology and, uh, and chemistry. And uh, it was a hard load, but all I did is study and study. And I didn't know what that meant. And my idea of studying was to memorize everything. I ate the book so I could spit it out. And I took copious oh. notes. And when everybody else was out after dinner or partying on the weekends or rushing fraternity, which I did, but I didn't go. 
I just studied. I memorized everything. And I, had a, I found out that my memory was unbelievable. I could eat the book and spit it out. And so I started to get good grades. And my first semester chemistry, I got a first grading period, I got a C. Second grading period, I got a B. And then I got a B plus. And then the next semester, I did better. And zoology, I got perfect scores on my exams because I memorized everything and I understood it. And suddenly I realized that memorizing wasn't everything, but I started to relate and understand stuff. And I liked it. I liked getting good grades. And the dean's list was something I had to look up. I didn't know what it was. I made the dean's list. And um, then in the summer, uh, it was only a first trimester where I went there. My uncle, again, my great uncle, he, he was a superb man. He got me a, a job as an orderly in the hospital, Mount Sinai Hospital. And I took this job and I made beds and I gave bed baths and I changed bed pans. I took the nurses out who were the student nurses, but it was fun. <laughs> and I, 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 I suddenly <laughs> loved it. I, I wanted to be a doctor even more. I want to talk and to the patient who got the bed bath by Dr. Ponsky. <laughs> I did. I did bed baths. And, and one of the patients was a kid who I went to high school with was in a terrible auto accident and he became a paraplegic and I took care of him every day, giving him a bed bath, changing his bedpan. Oh. And I, it was a, I saw this as a great privilege and suddenly I, a little bit, I became a little bit more mature. I said, this is something I want. I really wanted it now. And went back to school and I, again, I was a monster. I wasn't fun to be with. I wasn't fun for my friends and ladies that I took out thought that I was a crazy because I just wouldn't stay out late. I would come home and, and study. And I just studied and studied and I did very well. So uh, I did everything I could to improve my grades every summer. I, the next summer I was promoted to a scrub nurse, scrub tech. And oh. I, I, they would let me close fascia and the head nurse would come in and scream at me, you're not allowed to do that. But I, they would let me do it anyhow. And I got pretty good at sewing. And uh, I went through college and I, I made Phi Beta Kappa and I did okay on my med cats. And I got into a few medical schools. It was funny, I never took calculus. I mean, I remember getting into a couple of medical schools. I used to use what they called logarithms and you used to go around calculus to figure it out when I took physics and stuff. And, and uh, I had a mental block that I wasn't going to take calculus. And when I got into uh, Northwestern in Cincinnati, then I went to Case Western for an interview. And the dean mm. of admissions said to me, are you going to take calculus? I said, no, I'm not going to take it because I've already got into two medical schools. <laughs> and he you. said, OK. And I got in there anyhow. And uh, I don't think I ever needed calculus. Um, and I was very happy to get into medical school, but I also really enjoyed working as a scrub nurse in medicine because I saw what it was like from the inside. I loved being an orderly. I loved having hands-on contact with patients. Later on, years later, I started a program for, for high school students when I was the chief of surgery at Mount Sinai, the same kind of program where they could do what I did. And almost wow. all those guys went into medicine. It was a good I love this story. Yeah. So, so you 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 were in it Northwestern Cincinnati and and you ultimately obviously got into Case Western. So they they admitted you as well. So what made you decide on Case uh, versus going to the other? I mean the other schools. Those it wasn't very complicated. My uncle had gone to it was Western Reserve then. It became Western Case Western. I decided my uncle had gone there, but more more practically, we didn't have money. And I had to live, I had to live at home. I couldn't be living in some apartment. I went to medical school as I went to college on loans and scholarships. And so I couldn't be wasting money living in a city where I had to pay rent. So Case was a good school. I was very proud to get into it, but it was a practical matter as well. They also had something there called the new curriculum where they didn't give grades, it was pass fail. And I like that as well. 
they got rid of that by the time I got there. So, so uh, that, that, that must have been nice for, for, your, for your generation. They gave grades when you went there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had grades. We only had pass, fail, and honors when I was there. So, but uh, I love this story. You know, I think people think that, uh, you know, if they don't get 4.0 in, in high school, then like their whole future is dead. But I know a handful of people, and, and you're the most significant one where, where, you know, things change when you go to college, your, your goals and your understanding of like, this is serious, like I need to make a future, uh, build a future for myself, it changes. I think yeah. you have to expose kids to role models mm -hmm. and mentor them and encourage them. And I met a kid today who was working in my yard. And this kid is a country boy, you know, and he was digging a hole with me for a fire pit. I found out he's a physics major doing very well taking advanced physics. And I said to him, did you ever think about medicine? He said, no, I never knew anybody in medicine. I said, sit down, son, we're going to have a little talk because you like to work with your hands. You could be a surgeon and I'm going to help describe that to you a little bit. And we did that. So I think it's important to mentor kids starting in high school and let them learn a little bit about what we have to offer. We have to sell our profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that kid's going to be a future Sages Story podcast guest member <laughs> in about 20 years. We'll he'll, have be a, he'll be a co-host. He's, he's <laughs> we're going to be guests at that point, hopefully. <laughs> I love this. And then when you, were, when you went to medical school, did you know you want to be a surgeon then or because you were exposed to it as a scrub tech or was it? Medical like school is interesting because I tell the story. Here I go to medical school because I was a street fighter and I was just studying and memorizing and I got good grades. And now I'm in medical school with kids who went to Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. And I'm scared to death because they're not jokers. They're really smart kids, not like me, who was a street fighter, I thought. But I did the same thing there. And suddenly I realized that I was okay. And I was getting good grades in medical school too. And I could do it. And so you go through all these clerkships, you know, and you expose yourself to all this stuff. And every clerkship I was on, I loved every single one. I got honors in every one. And I just loved them. I like psychiatry. Oh my God. I got an honors in psychiatry. I loved I loved internal medicine. I love cardiology. I won the award in my class for being the best in cardiology. Who knew? And I, but in OBGYN, I loved it because I sewed so much and I could, they let me do a little stuff in the operating room. And frankly, surgery was a good clerkship, but it wasn't necessarily my best clerkship, but I like to do stuff with my hands and I'd had an experience in surgery outside of medical school. And I said, yeah, I'm gonna try this. Originally, I thought I wanted to be a heart surgeon or you know something like that. And then I saw how they lived and I decided that wasn't for me. I didn't want to- Oh, be yes. Well, psychiatry is interesting. I know, I feel like some of the best surgeons are the ones that got honors in psychiatry. I don't know if you feel that way. There's no reason that you can't be empathetic yeah. and be interested in psychiatric disease and still be somebody interested in the technical sides. And uh, I think that people think, oh, surgeons are so impersonal, cold and, and heartless. And that's just not true. I think in the old days when we were uh, forced to work inhumane hours and, and had to work so hard, we became exhausted and we didn't think enough about that. But I think that surgeons can be better psychiatrists than some of the psychiatrists now. They're more empathetic yeah. in some ways, yeah. Yeah. So who, who are some of your early influences to, that decided, you know, that helped you decide that you wanted to be in surgery? Well, my, uh, that's good. This, it's interesting. I, I worked at Mount Sinai Hospital. Some of the surgeons there were elegant technicians and I watched their handiwork and I said, wow, that is really superb to be able to use your hands that way, to be able to throw knots that beautifully, to be able to remove an organ bloodlessly and things like that. That was really very impressive for me. Going through medical school, I had some terrific role models. Uh, there was a fellow named Bill Holden, who was our chairman of surgery. And this fellow was elegant. He was a superb teacher, 
Socratic method, mm -hmm. always worried about teaching. And I don't think he was the greatest technician, but he was the greatest teacher. And then there was a guy named Walter Pores, who I worked with, who's still teaching over at uh, in uh, East Carolina. Wow. And uh, Walter was a showman. He was a showman and he would teach you about diseases and how, how they really impacted the patient. He would walk around on walk rounds and he would walk you into a room, a group of students, and the patient was very ill. And he would walk you in the room and then you, he said, look around in here and then you'd walk out and he would say, do you smell that? And everybody was sniffing. And he, what are you talking about? Don't you smell? Go back in and smell that. And we were all sniffing. He would say, that's the smell of death. Now, there was no smell, but Walter wanted you to perceive the situation. And he would do things that were, uh, he would do things that were uh, showmanship stuff. For example, he would have patients with bed sores. And he would have us going to the bedside at Metro Hospital, Kevin, listen carefully, at your hospital. And he would walk up to the bedside on the ward and pull the curtains. And we would inject local into the thigh subcutaneously and raise a wheel and then take a knife and a needle. With the needle, we'd perch the skin and with the knife, tangentially cut off tiny little postage stamps of skin and then go to the bed sore, which we'd scrape the granulation tissue and lay these postage stamps down. Okay, those were called pinch grafts. Pinch and grafts. the pinch grafts uh, would then take those and were skin it, was, it was a skin graft. And Walter would have the students doing this to get them to do something they could do. And we'd see the skin grafts take, and we would, and I wrote an article about this in the in the journal Surgery, which I called uh, uh, what did I call it? Pinch grafts and, uh, and zinc, because he always talked about giving the patient zinc. But Walter was a great teacher at all levels. And, uh, and he was a great mentor for me. And when I wrote my first paper with him as a student, it was about paradoxical air embolism in a patient we encountered who had it. And he made me rewrite it six times. It was a letter to the editor of the New England Journal. And he would read German poetry to me to try to get me to write in a more poetic way. So th these aren't uh, medically important, but they're important as being a mentor, to spend the time with the student to engage them. And that's what he did. He was wonderful. That's pretty amazing. I love all these stories. It's, it's uh, you know, each, each hospital has its own, like, you know, uh what do you call it the people that like like the legend within that that hospital their own lore each yeah, hospital their own has lore, its exactly. own lore yes, and absolutely. as i've gotten older and worked around in many hospitals and been visiting professor in a hundred i've seen and heard and given the honorary lectures in their name of all of these people throughout the country who have contributed to the education of the younger generation. And they're legendary for what they've done. And there's stories about all of them. In Cleveland, Kevin, I could give a whole grand rounds at the Cleveland Surgical about the people I knew in Cleveland who were, yeah. were great mentors and wonderful role models who you've maybe heard their name, but they were, they're legendary in their time. And every hospital, we used to have a lot of little hospitals and they were in every hospital. Yeah, I mean, and, and your name has come up, you know, as you, as you probably know, just a few times in the last 10 episodes, frankly, due to your, your, inf <laughs> yeah, your, your influence on so many SAGE's leaders over the time. And, 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 you know, you were getting started with surgery, you know, you kind of look at the 76 and 79, right at the beginning of kind of a cosmic shift toward minimally invasive surgery. What was that like in the late 70s, early 80s? And I know you were exposed to a lot of people here and obviously Walter Pores was a 
was a chairman of Metro Health and, and, and you mentioned Dr. Holden and everything, just great leaders. Uh, so what was that like? I, I was so lucky because the story goes that I was, I was a resident, you know, we were on every other night, 36 on 12 off. We got weary, but then I had an elective and I wanted to do something a little lighter. And I saw the gastroenterologist fussing around with the endoscope and they were brand new then. You could barely see through them. And I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to sign up to do that for an elective. And I signed up. And then two weeks before, I call him, what time should I show up? And the the head of GI says to me, we're not training any surgeons, just forget it, which obviously piqued my interest. And then Charles Hubey, who was at University Hospital's chief of general surgery, said, I got a buddy named Jim King, a young guy, just went into practice in Canton, Ohio. And he's so good. And he's doing 20 to 30 cases a week. And he wants to train somebody. He arranged it for me to go there. I went every day for about five, six months, longer than most people's electives. They let me finish. I did about 500 cases. The colonoscope didn't even, wasn't even intended to go to the cecum then. We, it was a, a middle length then. <laughs> and when I came back, I'd done all these cases. And I said to the head of gastroenterology, can I help train these guys, your, your, your fellows? And he said, you're not going to touch this scope. And so Metro, not Metro, uh, the VA had a scope and Jerry Benson, who was there then said, yeah, you can use our colonoscope, which was an Olympus and it was okay. And then I used that a little bit, but then uh, I told at a family dinner one night, I told the story how I couldn't use the scope and Bill Holden didn't have any money to give me money to buy a scope. And I got a call from my mother-in-law the next day when I was on call. She said, go buy yourself a Hanukkah present. You got the scope. So she bought me the scope. And in those days, we didn't have high-level disinfection. We washed it with green soap. I kept in the back of my car with the light source. And I got (laughs) calls day in and day out from the private guys at the university hospital because they couldn't get the GI guys to come in day or night. I came in. Uh Bob Zollinger Jr. stood there while I did the cases and signed the papers, but I was chief, I was a senior resident, not chief. And I did all these cases. And by the end of the two years that I finished, the GI guys weren't even doing cases. I was doing everything. Then Holden came came up with money to give me a grant and instead to to pay my mother-in-law back. Instead, I bought an ERCP scope. So that. And did you know Jerry Marks at this time? Because it sounds like he was pretty much storing the uh, endoscope in the same way. And his, uh, yeah, he was storing oh. it and cleaning it the same way. He said he cleaned it and, and stored it. We all did. Everybody did that. And, and that we didn't know better then. Okay. We didn't wear gloves when we did endoscopy oh. and we didn't. And uh, so it was, it was interesting because Jerry Marks came into my life in about 1980, 1981, because that's when Sages was born, around that time. And uh, that was a whole different thing. And so we, you know, that's a whole different story. And I'm sure you heard that story before, but Sages was born. You asked about minimally invasive surgery. When we started Sages in 1990, when I became president, we had like 300 members. And we were giving courses about surgical endoscopy relative to the relationship between surgery and endoscopy and how we would use it for surgical problem solving. And then, of course, you know, Jacques Parasat came to our meeting in Louisville, Kentucky, and in the exhibit hall showed the video of, of Lap Coley. Well, I was lucky because I was president of Sages then, and I got to be right in on the ground floor. You couldn't buy instruments then. You couldn't get them. And so we used the GYN instruments. We took, I took a course, Nat Soper, George Bercy, John Hunter, and uh, John Sackier taught this course in Salt Lake City. I took the course, one of the first ones. But the funny part is when I went back to my hospital to do it, Mount Sinai, I was going to do it on somebody who was on the board of trustees. My first two cases, first guy was on the board of trustees. Well, you know how to pick them, huh? Yeah, but who was going to be my proctor for that case we had to have a proctor david dupler who was one of my first fellows probably one of my one of my first 
Dave Doppler came from Portland, Maine at that time, and he stood there. He had done eight, and he stood there while John Mellinger and I did the first two at Mount Sinai. These are awesome. You know, um, Jerry said he had no problems buying colonoscopy. He just borrowed money without telling his wife. And yeah, then... that's how he did it. That's right. He just took money out. That's right. That's right. And when no, Brian we all had to find the money somewhere at, to at buy least your, At least your wife knew about it because uh, it was oh, coming yeah, from her did. mom. Yeah, she did. Um, okay, let's. so you finished residency, even though you were doing all these like really innovative stuff as a resident. And then what was your first position out of residency then? Because you were a very young director of surgery. Well, first of all, I joined, right? I joined the staff at University Hospitals, Chief of Surgical Endoscopy, age 20. What was I? 29. Unbelievable. 29. That's unbelievable. So I joined the staff and I'm doing endoscopy. And ironically, I was doing a lot of babies at that time because there was no pediatric gastroenterologist. We were Bob Isant, who was my great friend and mentor, head of pediatric surgery, said, Jeff, you need to scope all these babies. He was my big supporter. So we were scoping babies who were newborns and right. when they would bleed or whatever. And Mike Gowder was hired and I helped recruit him. And he would stand there and we'd do endoscopy and you'd see the light shining through. And Mike was always interested in doing innovative stuff and he wanted to do a minimally invasive uh, gastrostomy. And we had the idea by poking our finger on the belly and we put together this idea, no IRB. All we did is talk to the patient's family little babies with uh, birth asphyxia and psychomotor retardation. We did PEG just before I went to Mount Sinai. So I was 32 when we did the PEG in about May of 1979, did five babies. And then I went to Mount Sinai, age 32 as chief of surgery. Wow. And just to think that right around that time, Kevin was like a little baby in Cleveland Couple miles. Youngstown, a couple, couple miles <laughs> south. I called him to come help, but he didn't come. You know? Yeah, I was, I was just graduating high school around then. So a little unnecessary fact you would never know unless you listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, so you know, after your time at Mount Sinai, so 1997, you got you 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 finished up there. It's no secret that you you kind of played a little career pinball and bounced between uh, Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals. Would you walk us through some of those transitions? Like what were some of the key factors that went into, I'm sure were huge decisions to, to, to transfer, you yeah. know, well, these the huge... favorite place I ever worked in my life was Mount Sinai. Mount yeah. Sinai was a yes. heaven to work in. It was a small hospital with a staff where every single person knew each other. We had a laboratory that was unequaled and it was bigger than the clinic's laboratory for animals. And I had the freedom to have courses and fellows, and it was magnificent. We did research, the relationship between GI and myself. We had Tony Tavel, Roy Ferguson. We had a great relationship. I was doing tons of ERCP, had my first fellows, and it was really a great thing. Uh, but it was a small hospital living between the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals and it had a big debt and it sold, it was sold to a for-profit company. And the minute that happened, I had meetings with those people. They were for-profit guys who could care less about quality. And the minute it happened, I was recruited by Mike Henderson to come to the clinic because he knew what was going on there. Wow. And I said, that's time. I've been there 18 years and I went to be head of minimum. Well, it wasn't head of minimum. I was head of surgical endoscopy when I went to the clinic, they had a search for the head of minimally invasive surgery. And I was the first head of MIS there. I'd already been president of SAGES and ASGE by the time I went there to the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. And during this time- Yeah. Sorry, Kevin. No, go and, ahead, yeah. And during this time, when did you start your family? My family? Yeah. My family started back when I was a resident. Oh. I had uh, several of my kids before I had, all but one of my children were born before I finished my residency. My last year of residency, my last son was born. My daughter was born three years later. Apparently, I went to Mount Sinai. <laughs> so my wife had no partners helping her. I was on call every other night, but 
you know, here's the important part. You got to have a good partner to have all the success doesn't come down because you're a genius. You have to either destroy your family as many people did in the past or use that to bolster your success. And my family, my wife, my kids, my in-laws were always around me. So our success was a joint success, not just my success. I'm the one who has led the way. And it was true of many of my partners at Mount Sinai. And I've said this in my presidential addresses, you know, all of us who go out and give lectures, we're great stars and we give visiting professorships. Who's watching our patients when we go? We all have a partner who's making rounds and taking our patients back when we have complications and who's we call and when we get back in town and say, is everything okay? Those are the heroes as well. We don't do this on our own. Yeah. That's oh, a really absolutely. good point. It's a great and then, point. And then were your parents able to kind of see how you've kind of gone up the ranks and been so successful in your career? That's a great Coming question. From like, yeah, they were background. They were, you know, I'm not sure they understood the academic world. To them, uh, the greatest pride was that they were in the Jewish community. So for me to have been chief of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital was like a dream for them. Everywhere they went, people knew that I was the chief of surgery and they loved that. They saw my success. You know, I think academically my greatest achievement, you know, in, in a job was being the chairman of the Department of Surgery at Case Western Reserve. I think that uh, I was chair of the board of the board of surgery. They wouldn't have understood that. That right. to them didn't mean anything. They saw it as the chief of surgery at Mount Sinai. That's enough. I'm done, because they that was what they knew. But uh, the so other they thing, saw it. So yeah. they saw it. Yeah, I think oh, they saw everything. But my, I think that for my sons who are surgeons, they understand a little bit more. And both your sons are surgeons. I have two sons as a surgeons, one who's a real estate magnet and builds buildings. And my daughter is a professional photographer. So they're all very successful in their own right. Yeah, they're great kids. Uh, I know them. I know them all. Uh, you know, I, I think another thing is, is you've been involved in so many medical students and trainees lives throughout these years. And, and one of the really kind of cool things about you and in getting to work with you and knowing you, even when I met you as a third year medical student is how well you remember everyone's name, even my name, Kevin L. Hayek, you know, it, is that a superpower of yours or, or do you have to really work at knowing? I'm going to aggravate you as much as you've aggravated <laughs> me and my other fellows, then you remember their name. Unforgettable. Yeah. Talk to my fellows. They used to make fun of me because when we used to do ERCP in particular or other endoscopy and my hands were busy, I would kick them or headbutt them or, or give them a nudge. And one day, one of my fellows came wearing shoulder pads to the ERCP suite. And one day I went to kick Jeff Hazy under the table oh, and I Jeff missed him. He hurt my leg and he laughed so hard. Oh, but, you know, it, it is a, a relationship but I will tell you something that's interesting. And, and I think when you train people, you form a sort of familial relationship with them. Uh, and you have to tell them the truth. There have been many times, and some of our partners knew this, where some of my fellows were being recruited at the institution where I was training them. And I would sit them down and say, that is not the best opportunity for you. There is a great opportunity here because they need you more, because this is a better academic opportunity, because the people you'll be working with are more uh, akin to what you need, or your family is in that city. Your husband or wife's family is in that city. You wanna have your kids near their grandparents. Don't just choose a job because it's at a great institution. And, you know, I've often counseled people away from where I was working because I think there's a better life opportunity somewhere else. And my fellows will tell you that, that I've told them, go where 
the opportunities are best for your whole life, not just for your name of your institution. And I think with all this, this uh, mentoring you've done and training, you've also seen how specialized our specialty has become, right? You've been in academic surgery for so many years. You've seen that we have now multiple subspecialties within general surgery. You're part of, part of that kind of subspecialty, minimally invasive surgery, endoscopic um, procedures. Looking back, what were some operations or approaches you thought would be standard options for patients for years to come, and yet now they're completely obsolete? Well, I thought that a distal splenorenal shunt was a great operation when you <laughs> first did it. I dare say you've not done those. <laughs> you would be correct. I was in Cleveland to do it. <laughs> I had a guy named Jerry Wolkoff help me with it. I had just gone on the staff at University Hospitals. I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It was based on physiology. We were going to reduce the pressure in the varices, okay? And without decreasing portal flow, what a great idea by Dean Warren. It lasted for yeah. a couple of years, and then we started putting rubber bands on the varices, and nobody does that anymore. So I thought that was a great operation. Uh, I started doing a vertical banded gastroplasty in oh, the uh, mid-80s. I thought, I thought that was going to be a great operation for bariatrics. I did 180 in one year. What a great operation. You guys got to reverse well, them all later yes. on. Because of, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And... Uh, so things come and go, you know, and uh, you think operations are going to be here and then they, they go. And I dare say, I dare say in 20 years, you may say, I remember when we did colonoscopy for screening on all these patients, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Dr. Ponsky did 1600 colonoscopies last year. What a joy. I mean, come on. Wow. That's not yeah. going to keep going and we'll do yeah. other things in the future. And you'll remember that we did it. So uh, piggybacking off of that thought, fill in this sentence for us. Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky's favorite operation is ERCP. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, yes. Nice. To me, ERCP is like golf for some people. I love ERCP. I would have come in day or night to do ERCP, I just loved it. Ironically, in my last few years at the clinic, I didn't have a fellow learning ERCP, my fellows were doing other things. And so the young gastroenterologists loved it so much and this was their career. So I only did the ones that they asked me to do or when they asked me to cover. But I didn't, in the last couple of years, I didn't do it as much because of that reason. But do I love it? If anything, if they called me right now and said, come back and do ERCP, I would go back and do it. I love what's ERCP. The what's the history of ERCP? How did that go from E? How do we go from EGD to ERCP? Because it's fundamentally a different. ERCP scope. is a different game. Yeah. Uh, that was developed really, I mean, the first one was done by surgeons at GW Hospital, but it was sort of a trick. But the procedure was really developed in Japan by a fellow named Itaru Oi and other people in Japan and Olympus and other companies built scopes for them, Mashita. And then a fellow in, uh, obviously in Germany, you, you had the Germans and the Japanese and Peter Cotton and his colleagues in London. They all started embellishing it, making it better. And how did I learn it? I learned it on my own. I watched a ton of videos and I really got good at it. I was very lucky. And, uh, it was funny, there was a gastroenterologist in, who was in private practice in Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, and he wanted to learn laparoscopy. We were doing it under local in 1975, and he was doing sphincterotomy. He made his own sphincter tomes, George Broad Merkel. So we made a deal. He came to Cleveland. I taught him lo under local to do peritoneoscopy for liver biopsy, and wow. I went there, and he taught me to do sphincterotomy. That was it. But ERCP is like a, a, a golf game. Is it body English in it? It's very sophisticated. And I love it. Great, game. great procedure. That's awesome. And despite being a highly qualified surgeon, you've also chosen to get additional surgery. I mean, not surgery, additional education. In your case, you got an executive MBA. Is that right? Yeah, I got an MBA 
because I was going through a midlife crisis at some point, and I decided so, I was you know, to take a motorcycle MBA. Like yeah, no, MBA. So I, I got this MBA. He got the motorcycle too. I'm sure yeah, he the got the motorcycle too. too. But the, it's interesting because the the administrators at our hospital say, you know, you make all these decisions. It's out of your gut. You don't know what the return on investment is. You don't know what how to finance it. Get an MBA. We'll pay for it. So I got this MBA. And I met wonderful people and I learned the language of business and, uh, and you do, I mean, the, the Dean of the business school said the first day, he said, you won't be a good businessman when you finish this, but you'll be able to sit in a business meeting and say bullshit at the right time. And I have, and it's important. And so we, I learned business, but I hate business. I don't care about business. My kids are in business. They have all these investments and startups and this and that. And I say, I'm leaving the room because I'm not interested in that. I'm much more interested in horses and other things like that. <clears throat> Digging holes in the ground. So, so I'm actually halfway through the same program. <clears throat> yeah. Because he's a stalker. Uh, yeah, did so you learn how to do the internal rate of return and the net present yes. value? So, so I'll yeah. soon be a double alumnus with you as well, which is a fun fact. So both uh, the med school and, and the that is if you recommend I even complete year two, it sounds like no, you're- Let you're, me you're just tell be... you the most important thing about business school. It's the people you meet. Yeah. It's the way they think. It's yeah. the way they approach a problem. Yeah. It's, the, it's the thought process. You know, I don't like business necessarily, but when I'm presented with a business problem, or in, in, in medicine or whatever, I say, well, wait a second. That's just the revenue side. What's your net, what's your net uh, margin? You know what I mean? What are your sales? You, you have the questions to ask. You may not like the whole process, but you understand it. And it's structural thinking. And I think business is just another thing to learn, just like music or something else or art. I love this. I love this. But I think this whole Cleveland connection can go on for, for days and days. Magical Cleveland. You know? we <laughs> it, really, it, it really this, is. We spent really the most is. money in history on a quarterback who will never play. Is that <laughs> a really business deal? That's a great business deal. That's Cleveland. I mean, um, so Jeff, you did talk, uh, you, you talked a little briefly about uh, Sages and its infancy and so on. Uh, we've had several guests so far, um, Jerry Marks, Rick Green, George Bursey, they've all talked about, you know, stages at its infancy. So what, and that's been kind of an evolving storyline through our podcast. What is your version of how you saw stages initiated and then as you've seen it kind of grow? Yeah, so say I have a different perspective. I was already on the governing board of ASGE or just going on the governing board when Sages started, and I felt a little bit like a traitor to ASGE because here are these group of surgeons who decided they're going to start their own society. And I wasn't quite sure. I joined and I went to the meetings. I was on the governing board. And I went to the first meeting, one of the meetings that Jerry Marks had at the uh, Legionnaires Hotel, that's what it was called. It has a different name in Pennsylvania. And I listened to the papers. And the papers were nothing like the papers at ASGE. How do you use endoscopy in a bowel obstruction? How do you evaluate your suture line? How do you deal with uh, a volvulus of the intestine endoscopically? All of these things were surgically related problems. They had nothing to do with what was going on at ASGE and the light went off in my head. There is a reason for this society, intraoperative endoscopy things that we would do. And so I got really uh, committed to SAGES. And uh, the people who started SAGES came from different areas. Uh, I could tell you their names, but some of them were G upper GI surgeons, a lot of colorectal surgeons, Ted Schrock, uh, Jerry Marks, uh, Lee Smith, and people like that who were just magnificent colorectal surgeons, other foregut surgeons, and uh, general surgeons. And we got together and we had this perspective and SAGES started to grow. When laparoscopy came in, we had a whole new group of people who weren't involved necessarily with flexible endoscopy. They were laparoscopists. And uh, 
even today, the number of flexible endoscopists, although it's much increased, is not the predominant number. Most of them, I think, are, are uh, laparoscopy surgeons, minimally invasive surgeons. But endoscopy is now because of SAGES, and this was an influence that I was able to have through the board, endoscopy has been made a part of surgery now and general surgery. It is a requirement for general surgery. I remember going to the yeah. residency review committee when Joe Fisher was the, the head of it and saying, we need to have a minimum. Now, people say it's a joke, 50 cases. But boy, did they hate that, that I added 50 cases. And But the GI people think it's a pittance, but it's a beginning. And surgery requires endoscopy now, and the people that do it see the need for it. People that do it can't imagine evaluating their pouches on their bariatric surgery or dilating a stricture without it. Yes. The, en the endoscope is now the vehicle. It's the car that gets us to our destination. It drives us to our destination. Then we put it down, we have it fixed, and we start to operate endoscopically, whether we're dilating a stricture or cutting something or muscle. Whatever we're doing, the endoscope is the vehicle that gets us there. And so we've started to discover that. That's oh, what SAGES is about now. Yeah, it's, that's, that's actually a great perspective. And, and definitely, as you said, different from our other guests. Um, and, and, and really, it, it alludes to the fact that, you know, you've been uh, involved in so many other societies. SAGES is, is a mere fraction of your academic legacy. How, how are you able to kind of keep all of that straight, especially with a growing family, your chair of surgery. I mean, I feel like that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I have. And, and I probably, I know, I don't probably, I work half as hard as you were working at my age. And that's probably also true in regards to how hard my father works even now. So I just think your generation was fashioned a little bit differently than ours. No, it's not. Kevin, all I tell people <laughs> is always volunteer, never say no, get involved in everything. And you know what? You'll find the time. You don't have to lab belabor decisions. Make a decision and move on. Do the work. Get people to help you. You don't have to do it all yourself. I had my residents helping me on most of this stuff. We would have papers written. You know how we write papers. We, we give them the idea. Sometimes I even write the outline and tell the younger resident, help me fill this in, get the references, let's go. And you can do all of this stuff. The truth is you don't have to let your family suffer. You can do it all. When you go to on a trip to a meeting, take them with you. Let them go out and play while you go to the meeting. I've sat in a lot of meetings looking out the window, wondering what they're doing. And uh, <laughs> But they are there with me. And by the way, my wife traveled with me most of the meetings I went to. If I went to Cincinnati to give a lecture, she didn't go. If I went to Paris, she was there. And uh, <laughs> I wonder why. That's strange. <laughs> why wouldn't she want to go so, to Cincinnati? Yeah. So very devoted I, wife. Don't don't be afraid to do everything. Don't say I'm too busy. You can do everything. And there have been things that I I got, and I've regretted some of the things I quit, actually. Um, but uh, don't be afraid to get involved. But I think what's unique with you, it's something I've admired ever since uh, I was in residency, because when I was a resident, endoscopy was, uh, colonoscopy was not mandated. It came right shortly after I graduated. And, and I'm, I'm like amazed that, you know, I kind of missed out on that. I do some, but, you know, it's not, uh, it was never part of my training. Um, and I think it's such an important, important mandate as part of the residency. But What's unique with you is you've always also been fun. I don't know how to, how to say this without, you know, diminishing um, everything you've done, but you're innovative. You're all about the science. You've been someone to take this specialty forward, but you're also very personable and, and fun. Do, do you have like non-surgical interests that you can share with us? Yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm, I, if I'm fun, my wife would disagree. But if <laughs> I do anything fun, it's because I don't take myself too seriously and you shouldn't because there are really other people around who've done many more things than me. And I respect all of these other people. I Listen, think I, I, rem I remember your first Instagram post with Todd Ponsky, your son, dancing with the grandchildren. That could be my son probably <laughs> posted that, but because I wouldn't know how, but the, the, the funny thing, I like a lot of different things. I like physical work. Uh, I have a barn and horses. 
And I'm not a great horseman, but I love to be out in the barn every day. I feed the horses, muck the stalls, put in screws and fix things and in, invent things in the barn, like a watering system. And I just like to have a hobby and you learn about stuff. So I have friends outside of surgery that I go out to their barns and they don't know what I do for a living. And I just go out there and fuss around with them. Uh, listen, there are people who have wonderful hobbies. They're cooks, they're artists. Jerry Marks is a magnificent watercolor artist. Oh, we, we know. Calendar, oh, we know. Oh, yeah, we saw calendars that. Calendars are legendary. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, so people have hobbies. And if you don't have hobbies, you're cheating yourself. So I do, and I have a motorcycle. My wife got it for me when I was 70. She would not let me get a two-wheel <laughs> motorcycle. It's a, I always wanted one. It's a trike. trike so it's yeah. a big Harley with two wheels in the back and one in the front. We've been to Sturgis. Can you imagine? I went to Sturgis oh my with all gosh. the bikers. South, it's South it Dakota. Fun. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. Great oh trip. Oh my gosh. Great trip. So... So I have a question that I'm sure many people have asked you, and, and I'm actually interested in your response. You've lived your whole life in Cleveland, Shot. Um, has, <laughs> has there ever been a time when you've been tempted to move? And if so, where would you live? The answer is no. I've never been tempted uh, to move because my family's here. It's all about your family. Right now, I live on eight acres of land with horses. Guess what? My son, Zach, the builder, bought the lot next door to me and built a house. So he's got five acres next to my eight acres. So that's 13. And my daughter bought the house, two houses down from me with another five acres. So I've got them within and their land touches mine. So I can go right with the golf cart to them. So oh. that's them. My Todd used to live almost a half an hour from me, but that wasn't good. So he moved within uh, a half a mile from me. So Todd's close. And my other son, Lee, has the temerity to live almost two miles from me. So they're two all- Two miles? Yeah. He, is, he, he might as well be in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, he's like a foreigner. But <laughs> So what I'm saying is our whole family's here and with 10 grandchildren. And so it's a, it's an interesting situation. So I've never been tempted. We do have a house in Florida because the weather here in the winter is, is not fun. So I go to Florida. I've had it for 13 really? years. And I go there, by the way, you said, how could you go to Florida when you were working full time? I would go on a Friday. I would leave Friday morning at 6 a.m. and come back on Monday. Okay, and I would take vacation days on those two days. And I would have a few days in Florida over the weekend. And it, it was enough to have fun. And COVID was great because I was down there a lot. But uh, I think you can make it happen. Well, that's also a testament for what a great guy you are, that your whole family wants to be so no. near you. You have like no, a no, no, compound. Totally wrong. My family only wants to be near my wife. They care less about me. Oh, Jackie. Unless something yeah. breaks, yeah. then they call me, yeah. but they only want to be near my wife. Yeah, she's pretty I want to be lovely. very clear about that. She's pretty she great. She is the glue yeah. that holds our family together, totally. Yeah. I have a feeling Kevin may be moving within uh, your compound. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm coming soon. I'm going to get a couple <laughs> acres too. <laughs> if you can muck the stalls, you're welcome. Yeah, man. I'll muck stalls. <laughs> <heck yeah. laughs> um, okay, so our next segment is really one of our favorite segments of the show. We call it the We Are the Sages segment. We are the world. We are the sages. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you brighter. It's awesome. For, the, for this segment, we want to hear about your favorite sage's memory and since you may have more than one you're fear, feel free to give us more than one but favorite sage's memory and it can be as i'll give you a few as you okay. wish <laughs> all right my favorite memories my presidential addresses were highlights of my career i love doing that the people i've met barbara bercy and sally and colleen and the other folks at sages shelly they're all special okay 
my special friends that I've met, like George Bercy, Jerry Marks, all the people throughout the years, they're my dear friends. Jerry Free, I could go on and on. But a very, the, another very special memory every year is we are the sages with the Japanese, because I go to tears when we do that every year, because that is not just a song, that is our soul. And that song says why we are different from all other societies. That says that we are a family. That's number, and finally, Todd and I doing in the song fest, I can do anything better than you can. That oh, yes. my favorite. That was my favorite moment. Yeah. yeah. Anything you it. can do, I can do better. That was amazing. That was it. So that was that's amazing. all I got. <laughs> oh, those are great. Those are great. Yeah. Well, you know, I know I speak from for Sharon uh, when I say that that this has just been a fantastic uh, podcast episode, and I'm I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing from the living legend, and you are Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky. Uh, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Thanks for letting me enjoy this. It's been a great opportunity. It was awesome. Thank you so much. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.